Welcome to another edition of Market Impact Insights, your podcast source for business leadership perspectives to help your business grow. Hear from experts in marketing, sales, business strategy, and more with practical advice for business success. Make sure you won't miss the latest episodes by visiting marketimpactnow.com. Now, here's your host, Dan Albaum. Welcome back, everyone, to another incredible episode of Market Impact Insights. Today, we're going to talk about protection, protection in terms of some of the most valuable assets that you have as a leader in any company, and that's your intellectual property. And we've been through a pretty dynamic period of change the last two years during the pandemic. But one thing that has really grown during that period is IP filing activity has grown and Looking at some of the data from the World Intellectual Property Organization, there were nearly 278,000 patent applications in 2021. That was a record for them, and that was up uh, just under 1%. And in the U.S. alone, nearly 60,000 applications through them, and that was up 2%. So there's a lot of activity. There's a growing recognition that uh, really focusing on protecting those valuable intellectual assets is incredibly important. And I'm excited to have a world expert in this area, someone who's really passionate and can really give a great perspective on why that's important, but more importantly, share her journey in terms of uh, really being able to help some of the biggest well-known companies in the world be able to do that very well. And that is Phyllis Turner Brim. Phyllis is the Deputy General Counsel and the Chief of Intellectual Property at Hewlett-Packard Company. Prior to HP, Phyllis served as Vice President, Assistant General Counsel for Starbucks. And in that role, she was a leader of teams supporting the global supply chain, intellectual property, technology, marketing, and food safety. So a really broad role. And before Starbucks, Phyllis was Vice President, Chief IP Counsel of Intellectual Ventures. And in that role, she was managing and coordinating legal services that supported patent asset acquisitions and divestitures, licensing, prosecution, and related transactions. So really, really knows this area well, but also very uh, visible out on the lecture circuit. So she served as a lecturer and presenter on several topics, including developing business-focused licensing programs, diversity in the law, recruitment and retention of minorities and women in technical professions, chemical patent drafting, and and a whole lot uh, else. She also has served as a trustee at the Foundation for the Advancement of Diversity in IP Law. She's also been elected to the Board of Trustees for Trinity Lutheran College and has served, uh, been a member of that Board of Trustees for the Snohomish County YMCA, so very active out in the community. And prior to her legal career, Phyllis held technical management positions with really well-known companies, General Electric, Procter & Gamble. So excited to have the conversation. Phyllis, welcome to Market Impact Insights. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dan. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a big consumer of podcast content. So this is uh, just a dream come true to be on a podcast. Well, I really want to start going back and, and really reflecting on this amazing career you've had, and you've built it in those major global organizations in the area of intellectual property. Uh, Obviously, before then, you had uh, the business side experience. And I'm curious, what sparked your passion 
to transition from that business side of tech to take a path that ended up being more focused around this area of patents and IP? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I think um, probably when I did it, I would have characterized it very much as, as you did. But today, looking back now, almost 30 years on that decision, I recognize that I was just entering the business um, avenue or a business house through a different door. And um, but what sparked me to be, you know, become a, a patent lawyer was really my experience at Procter and Gamble, where I was a products researcher. And a products researcher at P and G is one that um, that essentially makes uh, develops products that are ready for the consumer. So, mm-hmm. um, and would take and would take a consumer need and translate it into a technical change in the product. So the consumer said they wanted, I, I made shampoo, head and shoulders um, shampoo. And if a consumer, you know, wanted static control, we figure out how to deliver that in mm-hmm. a technical way in the product. Right. Um, so a couple of things happened. The two years I was working in products research for Procter and Gamble, I supported two national expansions of the of the first um, line extensions or flankers of head and shoulders. So head and shoulders, dry scalp and head and shoulders, intensive treatment. Great experience, got to work cross functionally with everyone and was really my first experience working with um, intellectual property lawyers, patent lawyers and trademark lawyers. And after having done that, couple of realizations. The main one was I'm not going to be able to make shampoo for the next 30 years. That's not going to happen. <laughs> no. And the, and the other was I had this exposure to the patent lawyers. I didn't know that patent law was a profession before I had that experience with those patent lawyers. That was my first time ever um, even um, ha- having that exposure and that experience. And as I saw the work that they did, I said, I want to do that. And it sent me to law school to be a patent lawyer. Uh, And definitely a decision I have not regretted in low these uh, now 32 years when I made that decision. Um, But what I love about IP law is, first of all, it's always at at the edge of innovation, right? The things that I deal with are the things that are being created today that will deliver in the future, right? Um, and I have a very natural intellectual curiosity. So, uh, and I'm curious about a lot of things. And I get to have what I like to call techno- technology and innovation ADD. So I, I, I can work on one thing in the morning and something completely different in the afternoon. Um, and so that sort of satisfies my need to be, my desire to learn about new technologies, mm-hmm. new growth areas, new things, but I don't have to do it. <laughs> yeah. I learn about it, but I don't have to be conversant, I have to be knowledgeable, I have to have, you know, a strategic understanding, but I don't do that kind of work. And that's what's really I've enjoyed and do enjoy so much about being, um, an IP, a business-focused patent patent lawyer, an IP lawyer. Well, that is an interesting 
journey that you've had and, and really the catalyst. And who would have thought it was all coming back to shampoo, right, for all this impact that you've made. But uh, thanks for sharing that. And I'm curious uh, around the work that you've done with the, the business leaders, you know, in all of these uh, large organizations. Have you found that there's this actual education process for them uh, where you've really had to get them to better understand and prioritize protecting? Their intellectual assets? How has that developed? Well, it used to be harder years ago when um, intellectual property wasn't something that was always on the front page of the New York Times um, or the Wall Street Journal. And I think really when I entered this profession, the first step was even for many things, for many business leaders, particularly those sort of outside of the, the technological area of an entity or, you know, product development, the engineering, those types of things, research and development, explaining even what patents are, what patents are, what trademarks are, um, copyrights, what do they protect and what are the rights that come along with that, that can be leveraged to support a business. So, Sometimes very, very fundamental, because I used to run into executives all the time who didn't have even baseline understanding. Now, you know, thankfully, fast forward to probably 10 or 15 years ago, particularly when the with those of you who who um, have been around a minute will remember sort of the Blackberry patent case. And I think that is one of the cases that really um, brought patents to the forefront of business discussions for a lot of reasons. But fundamentally, it was because you had a time where the chief IP counsel needed to have conversations with the CFO. And so needing to make, first of all, the very in arcane inside baseball of patent law accessible. So one of the burdens that I have to carry as a patent professional, patent professional in particular, is I have to make my knowledge accessible to other people. So if I can't talk in jargon all the time, because people don't know half the, what's a 103? What's a 101? What does this mean? What does that mean? Right? Really making the knowledge accessible and then helping business leaders to understand what's in it for them if we embark on certain strategies or we decide to acquire certain intellectual property or we decide not to acquire um, certain intellectual property, bring it back to how does my work and the things that an IP team might do, how is that supporting the business interest or how can it support the business interest of that business leader? Those are the dots that we have to connect to make sure we're de- first of all, developing strong relationships, but then also giving business leaders the best tools that they can use in order to make decisions, not in an IP lane, but on a business lane, being supported by IP. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned something really important, and that is relationships. And I know from my own experience and having to engage and, and build relationships with legal teams, you know, within our organization, you know, it's a very critical relationship. What do you think are some of the biggest challenges 
that legal teams face in building those healthy, strong relationships, working relationships with the business owners uh, in their organizations? Well, I would say that, um, and I think this is true for a lot of lawyers, not just IP lawyers, for sure, um, that sometimes we as lawyers lead with the law. And it's very rare, although it does happen, where I've had, I've been an in-house lawyer now since 97, so a long time. And so I've had a lot of in-house clients. And most of them don't come in my office and sit down and say, Phyllis, I have a legal problem. They say, I've got a problem. And here's what's, and here's the issue Mm -hmm. that's cropping up. And I have to respond with, okay, let's be solution oriented around solving this problem in a way that is effective for the business. So not looking through the lens of, because much of the advice that I give is business advice, not legal advice. Um, It may be legal, it may be business advice to solve ultimately a legal problem. But I think that clients can get turned off when the focus is not on the lens that we're looking through as lawyers, I should say, is not the lens of the business solution. What is the biz- what's good for this business? You know, it's all well and good for me to explain, you know, the, the laws of patent infringement or copyright infringement or trade secret theft. But really... That business leader is interested in what, how does this relate to the business? I think the other thing, just on a personal level, it's important for um, lawyers to understand how their clients are being measured and evaluated. What's important to them, right? I think that is, you know, you've probably heard the saying with, with salespeople, we always know what it is, right? They're coin operated. Yes, yes. Right. <laughs> but there are lots of other folks that you, you deal with and understanding how, you know, what their goals are, not just the goals of the company, but what their goals are, how they're being measured. Because understanding those things, first of all, helps you bring a solution that frequently and, and serve up a solution in a way that it is more likely to be adopted and received. But it also helps you understand decision-making and behaviors, right? Because to understand how, why somebody is behaving in a certain way, a lot of times it comes down to how are they being measured, evaluated, or rewarded. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're really hitting on something for any relationship, I think, uh, is really understanding the perspective that that other person is coming from and then speaking to them in kind of a common language, right, that resonates. And uh, that just builds trust and credibility uh, going forward. So uh, that is that is spot on. And so you've worked in these different organizations. Do you think there are some common mistakes that you've seen uh, when organizations are thinking about their IP strategies? And what, what do you think ultimately is the key to be the most successful as they approach that? So first of all, I think the most important thing is to understand that the IP strategy is connected to the business strategy. So before I can 
at HP, at Starbucks, any place, well, any place else, before I can help my clients develop an IP strategy, I first have to know what are your business goals. What is you know where does this company or what is what do you want to have with this technology or how do you want to drive this business for the next two three four five years? Because as we're work developing IP strategy, having that business strategy in mind is very important. A matter of fact, it's critical. Um, and I've been in organizations where it's almost as if the um, IP work is far is completely separate than what's going on in the business, uh, and I've never understood that because intellectual property is expensive, and so mm-hmm. you're spending a lot of money. Let's connect it to how we're making money. What is the business of the? I always when I advise um, students who are thinking about in-house experiences. I tell them, I always begin with, what is the business of this business? The business of my business is not the legal department. It's not the IP department. Okay. The business of the business is defined by the business leaders. How can we bring IP in to support that? And I think frequently, um, IP is an afterthought. Mm-hmm. When it should be, you know, I as chief IP, IP counsel should be right at the table as we are defining the business strategy because having that information, first of all, as the leader of the IP team, I can certainly add to the conversation. I can certainly provide information that would be useful in the formation of the business strategy. But then as that business strategy is developed, I now have the, the um, information I need to enter in my lane, which is the IP lane, in a way that is going to make the business successful. And I think frequently um, IP is just thought of as an afterthought. Um, And I think, and that's on the business leader side, I think sometimes, you know, some of my tribe um, behaves as if they're not even interested in the business. Right? That they're they're, there. So it can be a two-way street. Yeah, you definitely want to make sure uh, that you aren't creating siloed thinking, right? And uh, so what you're talking about is having mutual uh, respect and understanding uh, for the the value and the importance of really um, working closely together and and understanding that those business drivers. I like the way you put that is on your team is just really thinking about you know the business objectives at the heart of, of what you're doing. And that would be so critical. And I would think it would ultimately would be the source of any competitive advantage that you're able to get, you know, through building those relationships. Absolutely. Now, as we mentioned earlier, and we all know, I mean, the last two years, uh, so many things in the way businesses work uh, have changed as a result of the pandemic, how they relate to their customers, uh, a lot of process reevaluation. And I'm, from your perspective, Phyllis, have you seen any changes brought on by the pandemic and all these other uh, organizational work process changes in the way uh, that companies are, are approaching their their IP strategies? Um, I think there are a few things. And of course, I was we were all in the midst of this, right? And um, 
And an interesting factoid is that I took this job at HP in the middle of the pandemic. So I sit here with an artifact that many folks have. Um, Maybe I'm on the extreme case. And that is, I have met nobody on my team. Well, actually, two people I met in January in person. Um, And so I think what we're finding is while the intentional growth of innovation and IP has continued, right? Because people know what their jobs are. They know if they're in research and development, you know, in product development, what products we're developing, you know, they understand what the, you know, technology roadmaps are for HP or any other organization. So from an intentional perspective, we're doing fine. I think, and I think most folks are doing fine. I think where people are having challenges is in that unintentional or opportunistic innovation space. So this is the, this is the part that occurs because it just so happens that the team that works on software is co-located with the team that works on, mm-hmm. you know, um, on and off switches or something like that. And because they're in the same soup and in the same place and they're eating in the same cafeteria and they're going to the same places for lunch and they know each other, that there is that opportunistic um, generation of IP. And sometimes some of the most valuable IP can come from those, from that, you know, interstitial work because um, first of all, it's a, it, it is multifunctional, brings together a lot of uh, folks with different technological backgrounds and different interests. And so, you know, diversity is not only good as it relates to people's ethnic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, but also in their technological backgrounds when you talk about problem yes. solving. So you get more robust problem solving when you have all this cross-functionality. So that water cooler, lunch room, coffee room, um, you know, uh, kind of interaction is a thing we need to figure out how to recreate even in this um, as we connect virtually, because I think most business leaders would say the, the where we work has been permanently shifted. Doesn't mean we're not going to the office, right? But there are going to be very few, I think, roles going forward where people will be going to offices every day. One of the very, very, I think, fantastic things that I've noticed in my life and practice, and I noticed this when I was at Starbucks because I began the pandemic working virtually at Starbucks and then transitioned working virtually at HP, is we're now much more comfortable, I think, operating globally. Um, because we've, because, because everybody is when you're operating in a virtual environment. So when I'm sitting there in front of zoom or teams or whatever, everybody's the same distance away. Yep. That's true. Even those folks who are on the other side of the goal. And I sense that there's this 
more comfort on a lot of levels of reaching out and collaborating, be it over Zoom or other places with folks who are, you know, on the other side of the world, in different countries, so forth and so on. Um, I definitely saw that at Starbucks in the innovation area, and I definitely see it at HP. Although HP has long been a global company, my, you know, my team is all over the world. So, um, and I think that's, that's very advantageous. And I think the final thing is, um, you've probably heard many uh, commentators or even psychologists, psychiatrists, or the folks who um, talk about how this has shifted our understanding of each other, um, that people are more humanized. And that's because we're seeing people in their homes and their children are in the frames and their pets are in the frames and, you know, and the food is being delivered and there's the person who's cleaning the house back there. Right. So we get to see these people in their sort of uh, native uh, home yes. environments and that humanizes folks. And I, and I think a person who has been humanized to you, you're just naturally going to have a better relationship with. Yeah, that's so true, Phyllis. I think back even, say, 15 years ago, uh, my own experience, if you're on a, a big conference call, I would have been mortified or or others were mortified if the do- you heard the dog barking you know, in the background. Now it's almost celebrated. People need and appreciate that outlet, right? Because we're all in the same boat. We all have lives and we're working in our home environments and stuff happens. And so it does, it's kind of been a great equalizer from that perspective. But I know something else that you're really passionate about. You've been a champion for diversity for a long time and would love to get your perspective around the landscape for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Have you seen that evolve? How has that changed over the course of your career? And is there some personal reflections that you can share from your own journey around that? Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, I am very passionate. Those folks who know me, that I this is a passion of mine. Um, diversity and inclusion in technology and diversity and inclusion in the IP profession. Um, I think on the one level, there are some places where we are definitely doing better than when I entered the profession. I think there are a lot more women, for example, patent lawyers, um, which is great, right? There, um, however, from a uh, percentage standpoint, there aren't really any more black patent lawyers than there were when I became a patent lawyer, which is a very sad commentary on racial diversity in this profession. Um, And so it has been my goal, passion, you know, my interest for many years now to enter and connect in such a way to drive real change in that space. Um, I want to have more black colleagues. I want to have more, you know, colleagues of color in general. Um, And the profession has just not moved in the way that we've seen, particularly this, you know, the legal profession as a whole, you know, there's people who have commentary on that, but certainly in um, places like 
IP. So what am I doing? You know, <laughs> I have, my husband always says, you have so many causes that you're, <laughs> you're supporting. Um, but I'm spending a lot of my time and my philanthropy in the diversity, equity, and inclusion area. I'm also telling people sort of my story because um, even as nobody expects the chief IP counsel of HP to be a black woman, they don't ever expect that to be me. Um, when I was at Intellectual Ventures, the same thing. You know, people didn't expect that the black that the um, chief IP counsel of Intellectual Ventures was a black woman. And it led to some very interesting circumstances when, you know, things that would be discussed in ways that people would be treated um, in ways that I was treated before people knew who I was, right? Um, And to me, that's that's, that's a very, very sad commentary. I'm encouraged though, that there has been a focus on diversity, equity, inclusion um, in all professions, but particularly IP profession, because mainly because what we are recognizing, the data have now shown us in no uncertain terms that we will get better results across the board. We make more money when teams are diverse. We get better results when teams are diverse. That is without question now. And so those entities and people who are interested in better outcomes must be interested in diversity, must be interested in diversity. So it's a complex problem. One of the places that we, I'm encouraging folks to focus and where I am, you know, hopefully driving uh, philanthropic interest and investment is in um, the technology gap. Because to be a patent lawyer, you pretty much have to be a scientist or engineer. There are other ways to kind of get there, but you have to be a scientist and engineer. Well, so if, if you think about my story, I was a chemical engineer. I wouldn't have been a chemical engineer but for the fact that way back when, when I was in grade school or high school, that I was hitting certain marks relative to my science education and my math education. So that by the time I was leaving high school, I was taking calculus because that's where you have to start when you're going to, you know, you're going to be an engineer. That's where you got to start when you go to engineering school. So the fact that I'm taking calculus when I'm a senior in high school comes from the fact that I was taking, you know, trigonometry as a junior, algebra two as a sophomore, algebra as a freshman, backing it all the way up to grade school. And what we have is that if there is an investment at those lower levels Mm -hmm. to close the technology gap, get minorities and people of color and girls more interested in STEM way back then, then they never can be me. Because they'll never make it through all of that. You know, they won't be able to hit those marks in such a way where um, they can enter this profession uh, fully credentialed. So while it's all well and good to talk to law students, and I do that, 
I'm not discounting that. I talk to law students. I talk to undergrads, they, you know, in the engineering and encourage them to, and sciences to consider patent law, IP law as a profession. I talk to high school students where we need investment is in um, early childhood, elementary, middle school education. So we make sure that that gap is closed and folks are prepared to take advantage of, of this, which I consider to be, this is a STEM career, to take advantage of the opportunities that a STEM education might yeah. present because they're prepared. So it's a pipeline issue, as people will say. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to to be thinking about the uh, the early years is where it all starts. And I know over time you have been a builder and a developer of some really amazing teams. What do you feel separates exceptional leadership from just good enough? Um, intentionality. Right. I, one of the reasons I'm an exceptional leader is because that is what I want to be. And I have focused on educating myself or giving myself experiences and growing myself as an exceptional leader um, so that I can show up for my team in that way. Right. What has given me that desire or what attributes do I think I might have? that would support my exceptional capability in that area. One is that I love people. You really do have to, to like people in order to lead them well. You know, cause I think, you know, not liking people and, and trying to lead them is like a teacher who doesn't like children. Bad <laughs> combination. <laughs> it's not a good combination. It's not a combination for success. So you really do have to love people and you have to spend time being a leader, right? You have to spend time conversing with your team, understanding people on a personal level, helping them think through what their personal goals are, redirecting them, right? When you see them going down a path that either you know as a leader isn't suited for them or where they've expressed to you, that's not actually what I, I want to do, right? I'm very sensitive to that. And, and my goal is always to make sure that people are having a rich work experience. My team members are having a rich work experience and that they're doing things that, of course, align with what the company needs done, but also align as much as possible with their goals, their personal goals and their interests. Taking time to understand that and plugging them in accordingly and helping them to, you know, development is individually led and leader supported. So I support them in the direction that they want to go. That's the first thing. I think the other thing that I've learned um, probably more in the last two roles, um, maybe the last three, but really as an executive is that being a leader is just about, is just as much about, not doing is doing. It's a it, it's figuring out how do I add value as a leader in these circumstances, right? No, not to think. Oh, my job is to make all the decisions, or my job is to do this, or my job is to do that, or my job is to do the other. My job is to add value, 
And how can I add value as a leader? And sometimes adding value as a leader is learning to get out of the way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think all of us can relate to over the course of our careers, we work uh, with leaders that have different styles. And of course, there's the helicopter leader, the, the micromanaging leader, and it's the opposite of what you're saying is they don't know how to get out of the way and they're equating value to the more I put my fingerprints on this, then I must be adding value when in fact, it's the exact opposite. So, you know, having that maturity to know when it's better and more valuable to step back. And then what that creates is this environment of empowerment for your team. And that's where the real exciting things happen and the growth happens. Exactly. Because, um, you know, I do push people well beyond their comfort level if they can stand it because, you know, you don't grow when you're comfortable. If you just think about your life, you don't grow when you're comfortable. When do you grow? You grow when things are uncomfortable. And as you're growing, things become comfortable. If you think about uncomfortable, if you think about a kid who's growing, right, what happens? The shoes get too tight. The pants get too short, right? You become uncomfortable. So in order to grow, you got to get in that place of discomfort and be willing to sit there until you're comfortable. And then you got to do it all over again, (laughs) If you're really, really growing, then you got to do it all over again. The other thing is just being clear with people as to how they're performing and where they need to grow and um, what their gaps are and how we can close them. There's so many times where I've been leading people who have been working for, you know, longer than I have, where I am telling them something that has been obvious to everyone, but no one has ever said in those, you know, 20 years. And they'll say, well, you're the first person that's ever said that to me. I said, but I'm certainly not the first person who's ever had this understanding, but having the courage as a leader to say, here's where you're coming up short. Let's think about how we can close that gap. Yep. That's the ultimate gift of, of honesty, and but with the mindset of let's address and improve. Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense. So- Phyllis, when you think about the future, what really makes you optimistic? Well, let's go back to what you said at the beginning of uh, of this conversation, where you talked about just the out, the amount of innovation, as evidenced, for example, in patent filings that has been going on in the past yeah, many years, but in protect in particular in these years where we've been in the middle of this pandemic, things have been happening. Folks are continuing to innovate. If you just think about the, it's one thing to think about the vaccine development itself as just a miraculous, um, unbelievable, quite frankly, um, achievement to get so many vaccines out there that are robust in such a short period of time that um, can prevent, you know, COVID. Amazing accomplishment, right? Unbelievable in and of itself. But also think about all the other things that had to get developed along the way um, to get that achievement, to make sure that I can just walk down here to my Walgreens and whatever and get a vaccine, right? We're talking about supply chain innovation. We're talking about um, delivery innovation, 
you know, tra- transformation in the transportation industry. All these things are ongoing. And this is a not, you know, it, it has been very clear for many years, but now more than ever, that we have a knowledge-based economy. And so as a result, people are still thinking and growing and, you know, filing patent applications and innovating. And I'm just excited about that. I'm excited about, for example, what, you know, if the metaverse is actually realized in my lifetime, what that means. Um, So I'm very optimistic about that. I'm also very optimistic, as I said, about I'm pessimistic on the one hand because of how we haven't made progress in diversity, equity, inclusion, but I'm very optimistic on the other hand that people now, it seems that collectively there's an understanding that we need everybody on the field playing to their strengths and and growing themselves to continue to compete as a country, to continue to add value to the world. We got to have everybody in the game. We can't afford to have any group marginalized as it relates to innovation and growth. That realization will drive more diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm very optimistic about that. All hands on deck is what comes to mind uh, for that as we go forward. So as we start wrapping up the conversation, do you have any other final advice for leaders that are trying to build a sustainable IP strategy that's supporting their long-term business growth? I would just say, I would reiterate, remember that IP is important. And don't make it an afterthought. Make sure your IP leader is at the table as you're developing your business strategy. Make sure you have a business-focused IP leader, right? one who is willing and wants to engage on a business level. And, um, and then finally, I would say, make sure that you refresh that intellectual property strategy as you're refreshing your other strategies. Don't let it get stale, right? Um, because again, I think that happens where we put something in place and it gets on autopilot and we don't go back and refresh it in the same cadence as we're refreshing our business strategy. Really important. Um, and think globally. Think globally. Don't think just the U.S. Be a greater global thinker um, because there are IP opportunities all over the world. There are IP laws all over the world. There are opportunities for enforcement all over the world. And as a global multinational corporation, um, always be thinking globally. That's some really sound advice. Phyllis, thanks again for joining and sharing your own personal journey and your perspective on leadership that is exceptional. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate this opportunity to share. And a reminder to all of you to please continue to provide the gift of feedback on how we can continue to make this podcast better. You can go out, rate and review. You can do that very easily on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the leading podcast platforms. And as always, make sure to visit marketimpactnow.com for the latest in business leadership perspectives. So long until next time.